Particle would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land we record on, the Wajuk people. We also acknowledge the role of Aboriginal people as the first scientists in Australia. Welcome to a very special season of the Particle Podcast. We're calling it Summer Shorts, a guide to the science of summer. I'm your host, Rose Kerr, and today we are investigating fire ecology through bushfires and the plants that survive them. If you like the Particle Podcast, please, please, please leave a review, subscribe and tell a friend. We really appreciate all the love and support. Now, today's episode took place on a hot summer's day. Rocky from the Particle team and I popped over to Kings Park to interview Ryan Tangney about fire ecology. Sounds pretty straightforward, but unfortunately it was a little too straightforward. As in, we needed to head straight up a huge hill. We battled the hot sun and walked the 2Ks with all the podcast gear, which sounds easy, but it really wasn't. At the end of the walk, we found a beautiful oasis of shade and city views to have a chat to Ryan and hear more about his research. I'll let him take it away. I'm employed by the University of New South Wales as a a postdoctoral research fellow, Um, and that's looking at uh, how changes in fire season are affecting plant populations. What are some unexpected skills that you've picked up over your time? I guess during my PhD, I I worked a bit with optic fibre, um, and one of the one of the weird things that I picked up as an ecologist was that I now can uh, I can splice optic fibre together, oh. which is definitely a skill I didn't think I would be getting when going through my undergrad as a as a botanist or, or environmental scientist. I never thought that that would be a skill set that I acquired. What's the biggest challenge in your research? Um, there's a lot of controversy controversy working with fire, mm. um, and that's not really a challenge. It's just more of um, it's a landscape we work in, so. We have to be sure to articulate our words properly and articulate our arguments and our positions well. Uh, And that's something that I definitely haven't always done and it's something that I need to constantly improve upon. What role does fire play in the Australian environment? Um, Fire has been an integral part of of the Australian environment for millennia, dating back, uh, I think, the, the throwaway comment that fire has been in, in global ecosystems for 420 million years. Wow. So it, it goes back a long, long way. In Australia, our biota has adapted with fire. And in vegetation systems across Australia, there's different, I guess, fire frequencies and d- intensities and regimes that define those vegetation types. What that means is that certain ecosystems have coexisted with a certain type of fire a long time um, and more and more recently we're seeing those I guess those, those, those patterns of fire change as climate change is happening mm. and also as a consequence we're getting management on the other side trying to mitigate the effects of climate change and the fire regime itself um, so we're seeing massive changes across Australia in, in the frequency and the severity and the extent of fire and um, it's not going anywhere what signs are there in Australian plants that they are adapted to fire? How do we know? What clues have they given us? Um, well, there's a lot of cute clues, actually. So thick bark um, in some of the trees that we have is indicative of, I guess, of the ability to survive through fire. Um, seeds stored in woody fruit on the cones, like, like banksias, 
Um, that's really indicative of a fire, I guess, a fire queue. Um, and and uh, we, I need to be clear that there's a, there's a bit of contentions about if plants have adapted as a response to fire or they've adapted with fire mm. or they've adapted to under, under a fire regime. Um, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, but there is clear pat- patterns that plants have traits that allow them to respond to a fire. Um, so, yeah, woody fruit on, on banksias, for example. Um, another really good one is, is um, some species have hard seeds that need high temperatures to release, I guess, their dormancy, and then they'll germinate straight after, uh, after a fire with the coming rains. Um, and those seeds that are hard seeded, as we call them, do require temperatures in excess of 100 degrees. Wow. So it, it may be from, from fire, or um, there's other me- mechanisms that, that can release that, but most commonly and most likely it's from fire. On a broader landscape, is there a type of fire that is kind of the best? No. So every landscape or every ecosystem has uh, different requirements or, mm. or, or regimes. Um, and every and we, even within our ecosystem, plants will respond differently to different types of fire. Um, so there's no one type of fire and then... The best type of fire is one that doesn't kill or harm or, or damage people or ecosystems. Mm, of course. Um, and then outside of that, it's ones that are controllable and um, somewhat benign in their impacts. When we talk about fire regimes, how, as people, do we actually manipulate fire? How does it work? Um, so Indigenous people have been managing fire across Australia for a long time, 40,000 years and so um, since colonisation, we uh, we have changed those fire regimes and further. Current management practices engage in prescribed burning, mm-hmm. which is the main target is to reduce fuel loads and mitigate fire risk. Um, hi- historically, it was mainly to do with uh, um, traditional indigenous burning was to do that maintaining landscapes, mm-hmm. and that was through seasonal use of fire in probably a lot smaller extent than we probably conduct burning now. When we talk about fire, we people often reference the seed bank, yep. the seed bank in the soil. How does that actually work? What's, what is the seed bank and how does it come sure. about with fire? Well, there's two types of seed banks, actually. So there's, there's a soil seed bank, which is where most of the seed is stored. Um, so that's all, all your um, acacias, and a lot of your um, other common uh, species like kangaroo paw, for example, they will release seeds straight into the seed bank, uh, into the soil, mm. and that forms a, a kind of a bank where seeds are stored in for a long time. And then when a disturbance happens, it can be fire, it can be clearing, or in some cases it's mining. Yeah. They often, the top part of the, the soil in, in fire is where all the seeds come from. Mm-hmm. In mining, they will remove that seed bank and they store that off-site, and yeah. they'll put that back in post-fire. So that top top five centimetres is this um, incredibly diverse bit of soil that contains all your a lot of your woody fruit, mm. or woody seeds. Um, the second one is an aerial seed bank. I mentioned it with the banksias. They um, they store their seeds in the canopy of the of the of their trees, and they um, they release those once a fire passes. Yeah. So there's and that's a really cool seed bank because it's um. It's not in the soil. It's in the. It's 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 more active in its in its um, management because it's managed directly by the plant itself, not by just innate innate by the soil. 
When we look at trees as they come back after a fire, you often see these little sprouts out the side of the branches. How does that work? Well, that's, plant, that's tree re-sprouting. So trees, um, trees and some plants uh, have the ability to re-sprout from um, either the bottom, where it's called basal re-sprouting, or from epicomic buds throughout the tree. So they're just little dormant buds that normally remain dormant, but when they're burnt, when they're activated while I'm passing the fire, when enough vegetation is removed, they will actively regrow. You can get similar um, responses if you heavily, well, when you chop down a, a tree and don't treat the trunk, you'll still, you yeah, often you see, see the, yeah, yeah you often see it sprouting from the base. Thinking about ecosystems where a fire has been through, when you drive through them or you walk through them, there's kind of like often just a lot of green shrubbery and often only one type of plant to start with. Why is that? Is there a particular pattern? Particularly first couple of days after fire or first couple of weeks, you'll see some early re-sprouting uh, plants and they are common, uh, most often not, they're, they're like palms or, or your xanthorias and your macrozamias where it's just like, well, particularly with uh, xanthorias or, or um, what's their common name? Grass trees? Grass trees, yes. Sorry about <laughs> that. Um, they, it just, that, that they're one leaf. Mm. So they, they just, so they burn off the top part and it just mm-hmm. come, come, comes back. So um, it, it's kind of easier for them in, in, a, in a simplistic state for them to re-sprout quickly. Whereas um, in, in woody plants, they have to activate a whole bunch of other systems to get oh, going. Yeah, again. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. How much fire is too much fire? That's a hard question. Yeah. It's a really hard question. Um, I don't know. Too much fire is probably uncontrolled damaging and killed some people and lost a lot of houses. Yeah. We use a lot of fire in WA. Mm. Uh, Yearly, we use a lot of fire. Um, And I would argue that we use it well in WA because we use it in a way that maintains ecosystems and maintains risk. That's not to say we can't use it better, Mm. but the, the department... DBCA, they do a really good job in maintaining um, fuel and fire risk across Australia, WA. And in terms of kind of when people talk about having more effective fire management, I know we don't have the answer for what is the most effective, but what kind of aspects are they talking about manipulating? What can you change? Well, you can change the frequency, mm. how often you put fire into the landscape. From an ecological point of view, I care mainly about how plants and the ecosystems respond. Mm. If you're looking from a a fire point or a fuel point of view you want to make sure that you're managing fuels themselves yeah we obviously mentioned how there's seeds in the seed bank but are they a risk of just being wiped out if the se- if the fire's too much well if it's too frequent the seeds are stimulated and they germinate mm. and then a fire comes along before um there ha- those seeds have seedlings have enough time to reach maturity and and uh put seeds back in the soil so particularly with some species that don't re-sprout as we talked about that they, they, they are killed by a passing of fire. There are a certain subclass of plant called, a, uh, they, they're called obligate seeders, and they can only seed, they can only produce seed, and they don't have the ability to re-sprout. Mm. And they take, on average, around around WA, is between three and seven years to post-fire to reach maturity. Wow. So if we inc- inc- increase our fire frequency mm. to periods shorter than that period of time, that is for that particular species. How long does that particular species need to get to maturity? Yeah. If we, that should be our minimum time of rotation. Of course. But because of the pressures of climate change, mm-hmm. and potentially the increase in 
fuel accumulation because of climate change, we can see that the frequency and the pressures on land managers to put fire in more frequently is going to be uh, is going to be tough. Why do we think that plants, whether they've adapted with or adapted because of, what what is it about fire that has like why do seeds germinate after fire? What's the benefit? Well, it, it gives them. It, it gives plant, uh, plants and seeds the longest time between disturbances. Oh, of course. So if you germinate, if you germinate any time after immediately, any time other than immediately after fire, mm, you're at are, risk of fire. You're at risk of fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So germinating directly after fire, you have the longest period between fire events. What can seeds tell us about a plant? They look so insignificant, but I get the feeling they oh, hold a lot of secrets. Well, you've cra- you've got me. I, I'm a big fan of seeds. I, my, <laughs> seeds are, are where I find uh, comfort, I guess, because seeds, <laughs> seeds, seeds make sense. Um, but seeds can tell you everything about plants. So they can tell you how, I guess, how much energy or, or their life, their life plan essentially. Mm. So if, if a plant is willing to spend a lot on producing a seed, that seed is most likely going to work. Mm. But and so you look at your larger seed seed species, like your. Um, your, your macrosamia species, they've got really large seeds. They take a long time to germinate in the seed bank, but there's a lot of energy there, so they, they can last a long time and they can be dispersed by emus and crows and all types mm. of stuff. Whereas you, on the other hand, you have like um, Melaleuca species or some other species with really small seeds, or even eucalypts. Yeah. Um, so a lot of gum trees, they use the other strategy and that's just produce a lot of seeds and cast them out. Yeah. So they put a lot of a lot less energy into individual seeds, mm-hmm. but they produce a lot more seeds. So what we can understand from looking at seeds alone is kind of yeah, the plan of that species. What's it cool. What's its yeah, what's its game plan? And so why do they all look so different? Seeds? Yeah. I'm not too sure. There's I mean there's a whole diversity of dispersal agents that kind of allow for that diversity mm-hmm. so some species they like to be dispersed but they they, they disperse their seeds through the air mm-hmm. so you have like a wing on the on the on the seed where others like to be dispersed by ants so they would have a little fat fatty oily little attachment to cool. the seed to attract to bait in those ants to move it into a safe spot yeah like a snack yeah like, like exactly like a snack so, so cool. um and other ones just uh yeah, so banksy is, for example, they've they put a lot of effort into protecting their seeds, mm. and every seed that they do is is full of energy. So when it's released post fire, it will fall or glide a little bit further, and then most likely germinate. When a seed is in the soil, for a non-plant loving person, it is bizarre that that can then grow into what is like a growing life form because it can't photosynthesize how does a seed actually make the plant grow well so inside the, inside the seed is um some energy reserves itself so carb, carbohydrates and oils and fats and a bunch of good stuff everything that needed everything that needs to produce a root mm. and a couple of, and get the get the leaves cotyledons moving so inside the seed is two cotyledons wrapped up or in some in if it's if a, if a dicot if it's a monocot as one cotyledon so they will, when the seed is in a certain position to germinate, when it has really received its germination um, requirements, the basics is that seeds need a combination of water and the right temperature to germinate. Mm-hmm. And once it has that, those things, it, it will 
put down its, its radical as a first root and it, the cotyledons will pop open. And if the seed's buried too deep, it will pop up a little hypercotyl up to the soil surface and then plop it, cotyledons out. So the short answer to that question is it has enough energy in the seed to get those cotyledons to the surface. That's so smart. If it doesn't, the seed will die. Oh. So there's a risk in seed banks then because yeah. if seeds are too deep in the seed bank, they, 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 there's a risk that when they do re- receive the right moisture and temperature cues that they don't reach the surface. Mm. And interestingly enough, there's a, there's a really cool relationship between seed size and how deep they can emerge from. So bigger seeds can emerge from deeper because yeah. they have more energy. Of course. And small seeds are restricted to their top stuff, on yeah, top, yeah. top surface. And is that reflected in the seed bank? Do heavier seeds manage to weasel their way down deeper? Oh, we're not too sure. Um, so that's I a, need to know. <laughs> yeah, so it's a really hard question. Because seed banks are so, uh, one, ubiquitous everywhere we see, but mm. also they're transient. They just and they're um, just really hard to get a picture of. Yeah. Because uh, one seeds look a lot like soil, mm-hmm. and two there's a lot of soil and there's a lot of seeds and um, it's really difficult to get a picture of. How do you? Because seeds are so little. How do you actually study them? Well, we're we're like I'm lucky enough to either pick my own seeds when they're still on the tree or Very or, cool. or buy them from native plant suppliers, which also provide really good seeds for research. And what do you look at when you're like examining them? Well, we have a technology where I work up, in, up here in Kings Park where we can, look at, we can use an x-ray to look inside the seed without damaging the outside of the seed. So we use that often as a first pass to work out if the seed looks pretty good and will do, it, do what it's supposed to do. That's so cool, taking x-rays of seeds. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a novelty that never gets tiring. If I was going to try to germinate a Banksia seed... Mm-hmm. What steps would I have to take? Banksy is super easy. Okay. They're, they're, if you, once you get it out of the cone, you're halfway there. How do you get, actually, come to think of it, how do you get it out of the cone? That's the hard part. Yeah. That's the really hard part. So um, there's a couple of techniques. You, you can uh, get a blowtorch and, and blowtorch it That's open. That's so cool. And then you pop it in the water, pop it in some water, let it soak up for a bit, and then do it again. Wow. And then slowly the, the follicle will open. Yep. Um, so once you've got, once that's done, you pop it on a bit of wet paper. Yeah. 15 degrees ish for a couple of days, and it'll get it'll, it'll do its thing in about a week, week and a half. You just yeah okay. So that's the hard bit, right? That's not the easy part. The hard bit is getting it out of the yeah out of the, set, yeah. Out of the cone. Once you get it out of the cone, it's easier easier bit. Is the fire and then the water simulating like a fire and then a rain? Yeah, it's also to speed it up. So okay. Normally in, in nature. It would take about a week. So you get it fire passing. A week later, the, the follicle will slowly open. Yeah. It, as um, the heat and the sun opens up the follicle. Mm-hmm. And then the seed will fall out under its own tuition. And then it'll germinate in the winter in, in the winter or first rains. Yeah. Unless you want to sit around for a week and wait for it to slowly <laughs> open, you can just uh, wet, dry, cycle it kind of thing. Do you often have to do things like that? Um, not anymore. Okay. <laughs> I used to have to do a lot of that, and, and I still do occasionally, but um, uh, I guess because uh, I, don't know. I, have, I, have, I have some helpful volunteers to help yeah. me out. Yeah. Are there any species that are particularly hard to, we'll say, break dormancy slash germinate, either one? Yeah, so um, not some species, but a whole genus. So yeah, okay. Hibertias, your buttercup oh, species. really? They're really difficult to germinate. Oh, I didn't know that. It's... it's it, Considering how ubiquitous they are everywhere, yeah, I was gonna say they grow really they well. They grow really well, but they're really hard to germinate. Huh. So, um, hoping to get my hands on some this year and give them a shot. Do we know why they're hard? 
Uh, it's a combination of just they take a long time. Yeah. To 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 lose dormancy, mm-hmm. and then they probably need a uh, precise germination conditions. Maybe it's like because they grow so well above soil. They're also risk they, Yeah. Okay. So, so they don't really need they don't, to. They, they can be really selective about when they want to germinate. Yeah. 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 If and once not, they're above, they not go right, just crazy. They, they will be like, nah, Yeah. Don't want to do it. What is something you've been working on recently that's gotten you really excited? I guess what I've been working on recently has been a couple of um, a bit, a bit of field work to look at how plants respond to changes in fire season. Um, so I was lucky enough to be down in down east of uh, Bailing Up in November, um, following behind a couple of uh, burns that conducted by the Department of Biodiversity Conservation and Attractions, um, and looking at where in spring can we get the best recruitment post fire. Mm. So we know that overall we're going to be able to get good response in the seed bank when we burn in autumn. Yeah. But because of climate change, we're seeing a reduction in those, I guess, those burning windows in autumn. So fire managers are more uh, uh, are likely to be burning in spring because of those restrictions in autumn. So can we help, can we define or can we identify periods in spring that um, maximise or seedling recruitment going back to the seeds and their relationship with fire how do we know that they need the fire to germinate was it just observation um so i guess there's two things some seeds need fire cues to break dormancy okay which are those hard seeded species they 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 require um high temperatures or they can also be released from dormancy by like digging mammals, sometimes that oh. would be enough to just nip, nip the surface. Yeah, yeah. So uh, needing fire, I, I always kind of catch myself when I say need mm. fire because they don't necessarily need fire. They just do really well yes. after a fire. And then a second bunch of species, um, they, I'm getting probably a bit semantic here, but uh, <laughs> the, smoke is a germination cue, not a dormancy okay. cue. So where some, some species require smoke to stimulate germination. Okay. So, so dormancy is already broken, but then they need to be told, okay, grow now. Yeah. Yeah. So in those species, it's kind of a seasonal cue. Yeah. So they go through like this, um, they get, I guess, um, cued mm-hmm. by the seasons, which releases their dormancy. So in some cases, that's, um, in sp- some species, it's it's 16 weeks of summer. Mm. We'll do that. And that'll be like, okay, that's over now. You're ready to germinate. Yeah, wow. If you get smoke. Wow, that's so smart. It's, it's super smart, and and it's um it's it's all basically just chemicals and cell signaling in the seed. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. How do you break dormancy and promote germination in a lab scenario if you don't want to set um, a lab on fire? So we can do that with a kettle. So for, for hard seed species, we kind of just boil them for a bit, mm-hmm. and that does the same thing as a passing of a fire. Mm-hmm. With um with seeds that need smoke to germinate people researchers here at king's park developed a, a chemical fr- derived from smoke wow um called carotinolide and that um that acts very similar to the active to smoke compounds um just in a in a in a lab setting that's so cool and for those species that are a bit more tricky we can apply just smoke water which is just um literally smoke filtered through a bit of water and and, and we get a mix of all the chemi- all the active components of smoke into a into a water situation that's awesome. DIY yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it works really well. What do you think the benefit is of understanding all of these elements 
Like, what? what's the point, you know? Like, what why should people care? Well, I guess understanding how seeds respond to fire means we can better predict what happens when we get fire. Mm. And we get a lot of fire. So if we know when... If we know how plants are going to respond to a type of fire, we can be better prepared to deal with those types of fires. Um, for example, um, if we are going to... If we do lose the ability to burn in autumn mm. we we can transition to burning in spring and still maximize seed response once we know when in spring to burn um beyond that you we need to understand all seed responses if we're going to use any of this stuff in in post mine yeah yep and um that's a big industry in itself mm. um and it's work that king's park science does really well Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Ryan. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Particle Podcast. This podcast is presented and produced by me, Rose Kerr. This week, videography was done by Rockwell McGellan. Artwork by Michael Gatt. And thank you, of course, to Marlo Ray for final reviews. You can find Particle on all of the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au. Particle is powered by SciTech and everything we make is made in the wonderful science hub of Western Australia on Wadjuk Country.